Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles now to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12. We have been away from our study of the book of Romans for some weeks now as we uh, focused on Christmas and um, the, the coming of Christ and celebrating those great truths. But this morning we return to pick up where we left off in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. And in this chapter of Romans chapter 12, Paul is reminding us and instructing us about what it is that makes Christians distinctive. What it is that a normal Christian life ought to look like, which is not normal in the eyes of the world. What is it that ought to make us stand apart from and to our non-Christian neighbors? What is it that Christians should be known for? Jesus made that answer quite plain in the passage we read just a moment ago in John 13 at the end of those verses, in verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Christians are to be known, to be marked out by our love for each other, love for other Christians. And this is a self-sacrificing kind of love, because Jesus told his disciples, you are to love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love them? He loved them despite their sin. He loved them despite their frequent misunderstandings of what he was trying to teach them and tell them to do. He loved them uh, despite the fact that uh, they even at times would offend Jesus himself. Remember Peter tried to correct Jesus about what he should do. And despite all of those things, Jesus laid down his life for them and for us. And Jesus says, that's the way that you are supposed to love one another. And that kind of love is what you are to be known for. But it is not only our love for other Christians that stands out and make us, makes us different. It is also our love for those who are not Christians. And particularly those who are hostile toward us because we are Christians. And not all non-Christians are hostile toward Christians. And we're grateful for that, right? Um, but some are. And how... Are we supposed to respond to those who would seek to do us harm, seek to persecute us, slander us even? How are we to respond to people like that? Even to those who seek seek our harm, seek to do us ill, we are told we are to love them. Once again, Jesus' teaching is very plain. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 
so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, everybody loves people like them. It's easy to love people who love you. But if you want to show yourself to be children of God, if you are going to be imitators of God, as Paul calls us to be in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children, what does God do? God loves even his enemies. He sends rain even on the wicked. He causes the sun to rise even on the unrighteous. And so Jesus says, you should pray for those who persecute you. And praying for someone is an act of love, is it not? Praying for their good. Praying that God would bless them. Praying that God would show mercy to them. Praying that God would forgive them. Praying that God would turn their hearts toward him. That is an act of love. Loving our enemies Loving those who hate us, loving those who seek to do us harm, is one of the ways that we show that we belong to God. And Christ not only taught us to love this way, he showed us how to love this way. What did Jesus do when he was hanging on the cross, when he was being mocked and scoffed at, had already been beaten, had already been uh, nailed to the cross? What did he do? He prayed, and he said, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Did he have a a right, so to speak, to be angry? I think most people would have said, yeah. Would we have been surprised by any regular person who railed at the people who had crucified him unjustly? None of us would have been surprised by that. But that's not what Jesus did. He prayed for his persecutors. He prayed for his enemies even as he hung on the cross. And we should not be surprised that when we come to the book of Romans and Paul begins to instruct us on what it looks like to live as a Christian, that Paul says basically the same thing Jesus was saying. Because first and foremost, Paul was a Christian. He tells himself, uh, tells us in the opening lines of this letter uh, to the Romans, he calls himself Paul, a servant of Christ. He's first and foremost a follower of Jesus, just like you and I. And what he is doing is he is saying, as he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. I know what Jesus taught. I'm seeking to put into practice what Jesus taught. And my job as an apostle is to tell you how to do what Jesus said we should do and to follow the model that Jesus has given us. So when we read these verses in Romans chapter 12, we find that they are just sort of Paul's way of saying what Jesus has already said. Paul's theme in this part of Romans chapter 12 is 
love. Love for other Christians and love even for our enemies. Now, uh, if you had the opportunity to listen to Tim Poole's sermon last week that he preached for us, uh, you'll know that he set us up really well for this morning because his whole sermon last week was also about love. He was preaching from 1 Corinthians 13 and talking about the importance of Christians uh, showing love. And that tees us up perfectly for Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 18, which are Paul's way of telling us specifically how we can show love both to fellow Christians and to all of our neighbors. So here's what Paul says, Romans 12, 14 to 18. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, as we begin to look into those verses in detail, it's important for us to remember a couple of things. One, the section of Romans that we are in now is Paul saying to us, now that you have believed the gospel, now that you have been saved, you have trusted in Christ who died for your sin and was raised for your justification, your, your sins are forgiven, you've been declared righteous by God, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you're a new creation, now... How should you live in light of that? Right? These are not things that we can attempt to do outside of Christ or apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. And so if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, the first thing you need to hear is that you need to turn to Christ. You need your sins forgiven. You need to be reconciled to God. And that's what the whole first half of this book is about. But now Paul is saying to us, okay, as believers, what does it look like to rightly respond to the mercy and grace that God has shown to you? How, how do you worship a God who has given you so much mercy? And, and that's what this chapter is about. Here's how you respond to God in worship. You give yourself as a living sacrifice. And more specifically, Paul says, that looks like Love. Verse 9, he says, let love be genuine. Verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. And all through this section, he's teaching us how to do that. How to love others genuinely. How to have a Christ-like love for other Christians and even for our enemies. So what does he say in verse 14? He says that we are to bless those who persecute us. And not to curse them. Right, now again, this is an act of love. To bless someone who is seeking to do, your harm, do you harm is one of the ways that we love them. Right, this again was what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 5. This is what Jesus modeled for us. Right, this is what uh, Paul calls us to, what all the apostles instruct us to do. 
to show love even to those who hate us by blessing them. Now, what does he mean by blessing? What does it mean to bless those who persecute you? It's basically the same thing as what Jesus said when he said, pray for those who persecute you. A blessing is a particular kind of prayer. A blessing is usually, there are different ways this word can be used, but usually a blessing is something, is a prayer that you speak over someone or to someone, right? But you're ultimately asking God to do what you are saying for this person. For example, the, the blessing that God gave to Aaron in the Old Testament to speak over the nation of Israel. Right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. He's speaking that over the nation of Israel. So in many of you have you know, spoken that over your children or your grandchildren or whatever. What we are doing when we say, may the Lord bless you and keep you, is it's another way of saying, God, would you bless and keep this person? It's a prayer, right, for God to do good to this person that we are blessing, that we are praying for. And so Paul says, even if somebody's persecuting you, don't curse them. Don't pray or ask, right, or, or wish for ill to come upon them, ultimately. Instead, you ask for God to do them good. Father, forgive them. Lord, have mercy on them. Lord, change them. Lord, stop them. To ask God to stop someone from persecuting people, that's a loving prayer. Because the more they persecute somebody, the more judgment they are heaping up on themselves. God, change their hearts. God, open their eyes. God, save them. Do for them what you did for Paul. Paul used to be a persecutor. And you opened his eyes and you made him an apostle. Do that kind of thing for this person. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for their good. Now this is not easy to do. It's one thing to read these verses when everything in your life is going well and everything around you is going well and to sort of in theory think, I think I could do that. I think I could pray for those who persecute me. I I think I could do all the things Paul's going to talk about in these verses. But if you find yourself in a situation where you are actually being persecuted, where where you are uh, in a difficult uh, situation, where you are called to respond with love to someone who is not loving you, then sometimes you find that It's a little bit harder to do this than it seemed when you were reading it on a nice, sunshiny day, when everything was going well. But Calvin, uh, John Calvin has an encouraging word to say about this. I'm I'm so grateful I came across this quote while I was studying this week because um, it's encouraging to me. This is a a challenging passage for me. Uh, It's been good for me to have to read and think and and pray over these verses this week. And I'm preaching to myself this morning, right? But here's what Calvin says. He says, although there is hardly anyone who has made such advance in the law of the Lord that he fulfills this precept, no one can boast that he is a child of God or glory in the name of a Christian 
who has not partially undertaken this course and does not struggle daily to resist the will to do the opposite. So he says on the one hand, look, none of us do this perfectly. None of us are so sanctified, have made so much progress in following Christ that this is easy for us and we always respond the way that Jesus wants us to. But at the same time, if we are Christians, we can't ignore this and we can't reject it. We can't say that's too hard, I'm not even going to try. If we're Christians, we know this is what we are supposed to do and this is what we are striving to do. This is what we are asking God to help us do, however imperfectly we are able to carry it out. So if you're in a, in a situation where you are hearing these verses and you're thinking, I know I'm supposed to do that, but that's hard. And I'm not sure I'm doing such a great job. Well, welcome to the club. (laughs) That's the normal Christian life. We know what we're supposed to do. We're striving to do it, but we often come up short. That's normal. That's normal. So strive, aim, try, work at, ask for help so that you will bless those who persecute you and not curse them. And then second Paul says in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That sounds like a lot easier right after verse 14. That, that's, that sounds not too bad, right? But there are some challenges with this too. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. What Paul is saying is that we are to join others in both their joys and their sorrows. That also is an act of love. And that's not always easy. It's easy to rejoice with somebody if you're also rejoicing about something, and especially if they're rejoicing about the same thing you are. It's easy to weep with somebody who's weeping if you're weeping over the same thing. But what if somebody is rejoicing over something you would like to be rejoicing over, but that you don't have? Somebody got an opportunity, somebody got a promotion, somebody got an honor, somebody got something that you really would have liked to have. You didn't get it, but they did. Can you rejoice with them? Can you enter into their joy even though it's not your joy? What about when someone is weeping? Someone, let's say, is grieving over a loss in their family. Everything in your life is going pretty good. Everybody, your family's healthy. Everything seems to be going your way. In moments like that, it's easy to forget what it's like to be grieved. To be living daily with loss. But if we love people, we will work to enter into and share with them their joys and their sorrows, even when we're not automatically sharing them. And this is easier to do when we are Loving somebody when we, when we have a strong affection for somebody. Right? Think, think about it this way. 
If one of your children grows up and gets an opportunity, or even as they're growing up, gets an opportunity that you didn't have as a, as a kid, or you didn't have in your career, or whatever, that you really would have liked to have, it's typically pretty easy to be excited for them, to rejoice with them, because you love your kids so much, you've poured so much into them, you want them to have better things than you had, better opportunities than you had. But it's not as easy when it's a coworker who gets an opportunity that you wanted to have that you didn't have. You don't have as strong of a connection maybe with them as you do with your kids. But if we, again, if we are loving people and we're concerned with their, their welfare and not just with our own, then we will be glad for them when they have things to be glad about. And we will share in their sorrows when they are experiencing grief and hardship. Because that's what love does. That's what love looks like. Next, Paul says in verse 16, that we are to be united and humble and not proud. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, this is a verse where um, it's it's difficult to put in English exactly what Paul is saying. The, The translators do a good job, and we get the basic idea. But if we could hear just sort of an over literal translation of what Paul says, he says, think the same toward one another. Do not think proud things but associate with the lowly. Do not be a clever thinker in your own eyes. In other words, all of this is about how we think. Pride and arrogance lives in the mind and in the heart. And pride is the enemy not only of love, but also of unity. So it's no surprise here that Paul says, live in harmony with one another, and then says, don't be haughty. How do those two go together? Well, if you're haughty, you're not going to be in harmony. A little bit later in chapter 15, Paul says something similar. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, our harmony, our unity is to be built around those things that we uh, say back to God in order to glorify Him and honor Him. Our our harmony is built around not agreeing on everything, because that's not going to happen. But on it, our unity and our harmony is built around a unified confession of the central truths of the Christian faith. We are united around our confession that Jesus is Lord, that he was born of a virgin, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was raised from the dead, that he's seated at God's right hand, that he's going to return to judge the living and the dead. All those things, we are united around those things. And if we become so proud that we want to stand out from others, 
We want to be unique. We want to be important. And we're not content right, to confess those unifying things together. That faith once for all delivered to the saints. Then we will destroy the unity of the church. Or at least harm it. By our arrogance. By our pride. By our desire to be distinguished from others by our unique ideas, our unique perspective that we think everybody else needs to hear and listen to. No, we need to be unified around those things that are of first importance and not be arrogant, not be haughty. But Paul says, associate with the lowly. Don't think of yourself more highly Then you ought to think, Paul has said. Here, he says again, never be wise in your own sight. Don't think that you are clever. Don't think that you're smarter than everybody else. Don't think that you are so important that everybody needs you and needs your opinion, etc., etc., etc. One uh, Bible teacher on Romans who I find help from again and again and again, he, he captures so well why these Things go together here. He says, haughtiness is perhaps specially mentioned at this point as being destructive of the church's unity. Humility and love go together. Pride and love do not. Humility and unity go together. Pride and unity do not. So Paul as he instructs us on how to love one another, warns us against pride and encourages us to be humble because that's what love looks like. That's what love does. Next in verse 17, Paul says that we are to respond rightly to evil. This is pretty similar to verse 14, but slightly different. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. When somebody sins against you, when somebody does evil and it harms you or harms somebody near to you, it's easy to want to respond in kind and maybe even to ratchet it up a little bit. Give back as good as you got, so to speak. Right? We, we, there's, there's something in us that wants to hurt those who hurt us. Whether that's emotionally or physically or whatever. But Paul says we are not to do that. Repay no one. Not just most people. Repay no one evil for evil. What can we do then? What what are we to do then? But he says, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You might say, well, I think some people would be okay with me returning evil for evil. I think some people might think that is the honorable thing to do. So what does Paul mean here? Well, there are situations, right, where someone returns evil for evil and, and we kind of think, well... I mean, I, I don't blame them. I don't, I don't blame them for how they responded. The evil perpetrated against them was 
so terrible. I don't blame them for responding in kind. But aren't we all more impressed and more in awe when, for example, the victim of a heinous crime or the family of a victim of a heinous crime is able to look the perpetrator in the face and say, I forgive you. You don't deserve it. What you did was evil. But I I don't hate you. I forgive you. I've been forgiven. And I forgive you. Most people, even if they don't think they could bring themselves to do that, recognize that as an honorable and noble thing. That's what Paul's talking about here. Respond in a way even to those who do evil, that most other people will look at it and go, well, even if I couldn't do that, that was a good thing to do. That was a noble way to respond. This last verse, verse 18, is so important. To me, has been so helpful. It's so practical. It's so realistic. If you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you to commit it to memory. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul acknowledges there that it's not always possible. And the reason why it's not always possible is because not everything depends upon us. But the goal, our aim, our desire ought always to be to live at peace, to live peaceably with all people. We ought not to be, as Christians, the kind of people who enjoy conflict, who pursue quarrels. We ought not to be quarrelsome people. We ought not to be divisive people. We ought to be people who love and seek and pursue peace and harmony and unity. But Paul acknowledges that's not always possible. And it's it's easy to go wrong in in two ways here. On the one hand, For some of us, it's hard to want to live at peace, at least with certain people. We don't really want to. We don't want to try. We don't want to put forth that effort. Paul won't let us sit comfortably there. On the other hand, there are some of us who carry the majority of the burden for conflicts that we have tried to resolve that are not our fault. And we can't do any more about than we've tried to do. And so uh, Paul speaks to both of those troubles. To, to, To the person who doesn't want to try to resolve conflict, who's not interested in living at peace, Paul says, if you're a Christian, you can't do that. You can't be content with disharmony and disunity and quarrels and conflicts and divisions. You have to seek to live at peace with everyone. But, 
to the person who carries way more of the burden for some conflicts than they ought to. Paul says, look, it's not always possible. Not every relationship can be reconciled. Not every hurt can be healed. And the reason why is it doesn't all depend upon you. As far as it does depend upon you, you've got to try, right? This group. If you've not tried to do your share to fix this, you need to try a little bit harder. But over here, if if you've tried, if you've done what you can, and the other party or the other person or whatever just doesn't want to hear it, doesn't want to get along, doesn't want to be at peace, that's not on you. That's not on you. You've done what you can, and it's not all up to you. As far as it depends on you, if it's possible... Live peaceably with everyone. But it's not always possible. And it's not all up to you. So don't carry burdens that aren't yours. If you seek to live this way, if we seek to live this way, aiming to live at peace with everyone, refusing to repay evil for evil, pursuing humility rather than being puffed up with pride, joining with others in their joys and their sorrows, and blessing even those who persecute us. We will be swimming against the stream. We will stand out. But we will also be living a life of love towards others like Christ did. And we'll be living a life of grateful worship to God. Let's pray.